Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 31 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Hello, good. I feel like this week is the week in between Christmas and New Year's. We had a public holiday in Victoria yesterday, which was Tuesday, yeah. and I don't really know what day it is. Yeah, it really good. throws you, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm yeah. all over the place. Yeah, me too, but uh, anyway, we'll try and keep the train on the tracks yeah. for the rest, of the, <laughs> the rest of the episode. We're here, it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. We got some more Patreon supporters this week. Yes, thank you and welcome to Kate Gunsberg, John Duggan and Sarah Kendrick. John Duggan or Dugan, Chloe? Tomato, tomato, I think Dugan. <laughs> All right, we'll go, we'll go with Dugan. Thank you, John and uh, Kate and Sarah for the support. Much appreciated. Today we're talking about Bandali Debs. We said a couple of weeks ago we'd be doing a two-parter, not just on his exploits, but the infamous and tragic Silk Miller police murders too. But Chloe, while he's known notoriously as one of the two perpetrators in this cold-blooded double murder, there's a whole lot more to unpack when it comes to Bandali Debs before we even get to that. In this episode, we're going to lay the groundwork, and there's a hell of a lot. We've got two series of armed robberies, 38 robberies in total, two murders, a disappearance, and a whole lot of background to wade through before we even get to that fateful night in August of 1998 when Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller cross paths with Bandali Debs and his young partner Jason Roberts. We're going to begin late on one spring evening back in 1994 in Melbourne's outer southeast when a terrifying occurrence would foreshadow the tragic events of 1998 or years later. Nineteenth of September, nineteen ninety-four, Hallam, Victoria. Constable Jason Bryant and Sergeant Alan Beckwith were patrolling north along Hallam Road when they spotted a stolen Nissan Bluebird with stolen registration plates backing out of Bowen's Timber and Hardware. Neither of the officers knew the car or the plates were stolen at that moment, but the driver was hasty to be on their way. 
of the police pulled over and let them pass before putting on their lights and pulling the vehicle over. This was night time, so the occupants of the Bluebird may not have known this was a police car, but they soon learnt. As Sergeant Beckwith left his vehicle to approach the Bluebird, a middle-aged, husky-looking man leapt out of the Nissan with a revolver, pointed directly at the officer. Then he fired a shot. Sergeant Beckwith dove back into his vehicle and Constable Bryant ducked behind the dash as two more shots from the attacker smashed through the windscreen. The glass flying into the sides of the officers' faces. The officers then promptly reversed and removed their service revolvers to return fire, but the Bluebird revved loudly, spun its tyres and took off. Sergeant Beckwith and Constable Bryant returned five shots at the Bluebird, but it sped off towards the Princess Highway from view. Neither officer was hit, luckily, except for a few cuts from the glass. They gave pursuit of the offending vehicle, but were unable to locate it. The following day, the Nissan Bluebird was discovered at the Fountain Gate Shopping Centre in Narry Warren, completely torched by fire. Bandali Debs was born on the 18th of July, 1953. He was born with the name Edmund Plancis, which he'd later change. His mother Helga was German, and she'd migrated to Australia in the late 1940s. After this time, she had a string of unsuccessful relationships. She'd first marry a guy named Olga Plancis, and this was back in Germany. They had a son, and then they moved to Australia. After this marriage broke down, Olga left for Adelaide, taking the couple's son with him. Then, Helga met a guy named Sylvester Wapnowski. This would be Bandali's biological father. The pair had young Edmund together, as he was known at the time, and another two children after this, who they'd named Robert and Christine. Despite this, it seems Edmund had his mother's surname from her first marriage to Olga Plancis. But this relationship too ran its course, Helga then ended up with a guy named Dennis Reynolds for a short stretch, before marrying a naval petty officer named Albert Rutherford in 1977. Van Darley, by this time at age 15, was said to run away from home on occasion. He was an unhappy young man who'd perhaps crossed the tracks into juvenile delinquency at this point. His brother Robert later reflected on this time in their lives, saying that they'd been abused as kids by a partner or partners of their mother, specifically mentioning that he'd been forced to watch one of these guys cane Bandali across the backside with copper wire until he bled. Whatever transpired there, it's obvious that Bandali wasn't happy at home, and this led to him running away of his own accord on several occasions. During one of these trips, he met a man who was 25 plus years his senior, This guy ran a boarding house in the Sydney suburb of Roselle. He struck up a relationship with this man that would be best described as paternal. And this man's name was Michael Malik Bandali Debs. A couple of years after their meeting, Malik Debs would adopt young Edmund, who'd in turn took on his father figure's name, and from that point on legally changed his name and went by Bandali Debs. 
He'd later just go by the name of Ben in an everyday sense. That's what people came to know him as. In 1978, Bandali moved to Melbourne, the outer southeast, I gather, as this is where he'd eventually settle down when he became married to a lady named Dorothy. She was from Malta originally, and together she and Bandali had five children, three girls named Nicole, Joanne and Kylie, and two boys, Michael and Joseph. In 1979, we'd see the first signs of criminal activity for Bandali Debs, when he received a handling charge. So I took this to mean he was present or had some involvement with stolen goods of some kind. It was kind of brushed off as a small-time offence, potentially him being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Debs family lived in the southeastern suburb of Warren, which is 38 kilometres from Melbourne CBD. Warren has close to 30,000 people living there, It's really boomed over the past decade to become part of a major suburban growth corridor in Melbourne's east and southeast. It's gone from semi-rural to hosting a plethora of new residential housing developments. It's famously home to Australia's second largest shopping centre, Westfield Fountain Gate, which of course features prominently in the cult TV show Kath and Kim. It's had a lot of money pumped into development, both residentially and commercially in recent years in infrastructure to build things up for a multitude of young families moving into the area. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was very much on the urban fringe and a very affordable area. The Debs family ultimately ended up living in this pretty run-of-the-mill orange brick home in Narry. There's some pictures of it online on realestate.com from when it went up for lease a couple of years ago. Here, Bandali and his family settled into a very normal some would say almost mundane residential existence. He was a typical Aussie battler to all outside appearances. He worked as a labourer and then a cleaner for a time. He was a basic family man, dad and husband. Swore like a sailor, slagged off his wife's cooking when she was out of earshot and nabbed a chalk wedge from the freezer whenever his kids hadn't eaten them all. He had pet nicknames for his daughters, Bubs and Kitten, things like that, One of the girls in return referred to him as fuckhead in an endearing fashion, particularly when they had to show him how to use his mobile phone. Not an uncommon weak spot for men of Bandali's generation. But the Debs family tree, while in existence, would later prove to be something that was seemingly difficult for police to track. Maybe that was due to name changes, both elected and due to marriage, or maybe it had to do with migration and the likes at the time. Whatever the case... We know Dorothy Debs had a sister named Rita Giller. She was married to a bloke named Lou, and they lived nearby in Hampton Park. Lou and Rita had a son named Jason, Bandali's nephew. Jason, an adult now, back in the late 80s was described as a pale and lanky teenager with a deadpan voice who was into motorbikes. His uncle Bandali, meanwhile, had gone from kid into an approaching 40-year-old burly man. He worked in construction and he'd later become a tiler. He had shaggy, thinning grey-brown hair, a bit of a tanned complexion, a bit of weight around the middle, and he stood about six feet tall. Your typical knockabout Aussie bloke who had some sort of heritage that you couldn't pin down. He'd later give differing accounts of Italian and Lebanese, linking back to his adopted father Malik. And while Bandali was still close with his father figure Malik, It was now said to be his turn to become the father figure, the master, and time to get his own apprentice. So it was assumed by police, we inferred, that into his mid-teens, 
Jason Giller began to form a relationship along these lines with his uncle Bandali. Bandali, meanwhile, had recently been convicted of unlawful assault with a weapon and theft, a conviction he appealed and subsequently had quashed, receiving a mere $500 fine for the lesser assault charge. This was in 1988. There would be escalation for Bendali Debs after this when he allegedly became an armed robber. We say allegedly because he was never convicted of the series of armed robberies referred to as the pig-out robberies. These occurred throughout Melbourne's southeastern suburbs in the early to mid-1990s. But his nephew, Jason Giller, was. In 2003, Giller received a 10-year sentence for his role in a number of these armed robberies. We set it up front, right, Chloe? There's there's a lot of robberies to cover off in this episode. This first series, we have 28. It's certainly been reported in the media as gospel that Bandali Debs was the older of the two offenders in this series. But for the sake of good order, as we run through these attacks, we'll simply refer to these offenders as the younger and older bandit. These guys were known as the restaurant bandits. They didn't hit jewelers. They hit restaurants and fast food outlets, mostly. The takes were smaller, but these places were softer targets with much lower risk. For some additional context before we get into these, it was reported in a 2013 Herald Sun article by Paul Anderson, Jason Giller was left in no doubt as to his uncle's propensity for violence after these attacks. Bendali once pointed a gun at his nephew and told him it would be over in two seconds if he said anything about the robberies. Jason was heard to have said that his uncle was a Svengali-style overlord who corrupted him. Pig out. Late December 1991. The Eating House, Dandenong. Boss Lionel Hong and waitress Mei Ling Chan, alongside a few other waiting and bar staff, were cleaning and closing up after a busy night. At around 12.50am, two men wearing President Nixon and Carter masks stormed into the restaurant and tied them all up at gunpoint. Who's the boss and where's the fucking money? The older bandit said. He was wearing Velcro tab runners, jeans and a leather jacket. The younger bandit was quieter, the older, more comfortable and aggressive. After bagging nearly $7,000 cash and loading up a few bottles of Cointreau, Maduri and Johnny Walker, the bandits chuckled Merry Christmas as they left the terrified restaurant workers tied up on the floor. 8th of February, 1992. Pizza Hut, Cranburn. Paolo Lemoy was closing up his Pizza Hut store around midnight, a worker or two left behind, when his wife Sandra surprisingly showed up with their baby Bianca. She helped him with taking a few last-minute orders while Paolo tidied up out the back, giving his baby daughter a cuddle as he did. As he re-entered the premises after throwing out some garbage, he came face-to-face with a balaclava-wearing robber who shoved the barrel of a large gun in his face. Paolo, trembling with his baby daughter cradled in his arms, obeyed the robber's demands. Get inside. If you do as you're told, no one will get hurt. They tied up Paolo, Sandra and the remaining employee Joshua. Sandra was understandably panicked for her baby's safety. Listen, we don't want to hurt anyone. We have kids of our own for Christ's sakes. Do any of you pricks have any jewellery? The older bandit said. He instructed the younger bandit to watch them as he raided the till and they left shortly thereafter. Sandra cradled her baby after they got free of their bindings. They didn't get a look at the men unmasked or in their car. 
Late February 1992. Dial a pizza, Berwick. Store manager Gus Herman returned to the store just after midnight, having delivered the last Mexicana himself. The place was wide open, the till ransacked, and no sign of his staff. Meanwhile, out on nearby Wheeler Street, 18-year-old David Locke spotted two men peeling balaclavas from their faces, jumping into a silver Ford Laser or Holden Astra and taking off promptly. He saw the older one more than the younger one. He would remain the only person to see these bandits unmasked. The older guy was mid-40s, stubbly, thick-set with receding dark hair and a square jaw. April 1992. McDonald's, Narry Warren, Fountain Gate. 32-year-old Maria Kosef was counting the day's takings, around $7,000, when two men burst into the store from the rear and forced the five teenage staff down onto the ground at gunpoint. They taped the employees up and Maria noticed the younger man had motorcycle gloves on. He accidentally whacked her in the face when taping and apologised. Lie here for 10 minutes, we'll ring the police and let them know you're here, the older bandit said before the pair took off into the night. May 1992, Ringwood Golf Club. Sunday afternoon, as the day's Stableford competition came to a close, the bandits hit the pro shop and they weren't interested in the latest Big Bertha from Callaway. All right, boys, back into the shop. Get down on the floor, put your hands behind your back. Who's the boss here? Who's the one in charge? At gunpoint, Ian Breckenridge facilitated the bandits as they nabbed $7,200 from the safe. The bandits taped him and two others before fleeing the scene. By spring 1992, the bandits had hit another two locations, a charcoal chicken shop in Endeavour Hills and, shortly after, another pizza hut in Wheeler's Hill. Police dogs tracked descent from the back door of the pizza hut across some vacant land to a nearby residential street, where they bagged an empty Tui's classic beer stubby and an empty can of Coca-Cola. So this brings us up to robbery number eight. It was around this time police would launch Operation Pig Out, the official counter-attack to catch the restaurant bandits. November 1992. Halloween. Pizza Haven. Black Rock. Around 1am, Con Tadzik and Lisa Hunter were counting the day's take, closing up shop. Con's sister Belinda had arrived to pick him up and was using the toilet when two bandits entered the premises and held everyone up at gunpoint. But they hadn't seen Belinda yet. Amongst their usual MO of raiding takings, contents and swearing, the older bandit's gun went off accidentally ricocheted off the wall after grazing Con's leg and flew under the bathroom stall, hitting Belinda in the foot. She screamed in pain and was ordered to come out. The bandit apologised and the pair fled with their loot. Con, Belinda and Lisa were all fine but for some superficial wounds and probably some lasting mental trauma too. Later in 1992, they hit the New Canton restaurant in Glen Huntley, then the Pizza Hut in Wheeler's Hill again the only revisit they would make in this series of robberies. January 17, 1993. Kazani Restaurant, Turner South. Two men wearing gorilla masks stormed the restaurant and ordered manager Dulip Gaykar and chef Guyan Digi onto their stomachs before raiding the place and taking off laughing. 
The pair mentioned two things they hadn't previously. They asked for drugs and said they had just gotten out of jail, a reasoning for why they were committing the robbery. The question at the time was, was this true or were the bandits leaving red herrings for the investigators? Later in January 1993, Mr Shu's pizza in Dandenong was hit next, making it the 12th armed robbery in this series of escalating attacks. February 1993. Lucky Star, Springvale. Store owner Jerry Kwong closed up in the early hours and was heading back to his car with a briefcase containing $8,000 from a large function they'd catered that evening when two balaclava-wearing bandits held him up at gunpoint in the car park. They bound Jerry and fled. Jerry later managed to free his ankles and stagger into a nearby Greek community centre for help. March 1993, the Costa Azura, Black Rock was hit, followed by La Folla in Mitcham in April the following month. Lance Minotti, the restaurant manager, was sitting at a table with family and friends one evening when he saw the two masked bandits enter the premises. Uh-oh, here we go. The two men were wearing ghost or ghoulish masks, reminiscent of an 80s John Carpenter movie. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is a hold-up, and we're not joking. The pair displayed a noticeable increase in aggression during this robbery, being more forceful and sharp with victims as they berated them for cash, jewellery, the keys to their cars, etc. It was a quiet night at La Folla, so the take wasn't great, but the bandits left in their usual insolent style. Have a nice evening, everybody. Just one week later, Peking land in Roeville was robbed, Manager Hugh Lowe didn't recognise it at the time, but the bandits, this time wearing clown masks, had introduced a police scanner into their kit of equipment. Security guard Jeff Stozell arrived midway through the robbery, pivoted and ran at the sight of the pistol-toting clown. He went to a nearby Ampol servo where he alerted authorities. When they arrived at Peking Land, the bandits, cash and champagne magnums had gone. 2nd of May, 1993. Carry on clowning in the Bristol Decorator Centre, Doveton. This time they were wearing monkey masks and it was broad daylight. The pair bagged the business's takings and used some of the store's own tape to tie up the manager and customers. After having a chuckle with the manager about how shit the tape was, the pair took off in a white Ford Escort along Progress Street. Just a few short days later, the bandits hit BBC Hardware in Narry Warren where they tied up three female staff members and made off with the takings. And then, shortly after this attack, they robbed Cassavini in Doncaster. Derek and Angela Ricky heard the commotion from the kitchen and after spotting the two armed intruders, escaped to the nearby La Ferme gymnasium next door where they called the police. Again, the bandits escaped. So I wanted to take a moment here to just recap a few things as we roll into Job 20 of the Pig Out series. It seems like a long string of armed robberies to be getting nowhere from the police's point of view. But there were other suspects as this series rolled along, which were ultimately dead ends, but they had to be exhaustively investigated. There were also other armed robberies during this time period too, not just pizza huts, but higher value, higher risk jobs, such as Mercedes-Benz car yards, for example. So police were busy and it was difficult at times to determine what robberies were connected to certain series and different offenders. 
a string of suspects for the pig out robberies did come up, but none of whom were Bandali Debs or Jason Giller at this point. And while many of these suspects were done for other robberies, they were eliminated as suspects in the pig out series for various reasons. And what did we have at this point? Amongst the various masks, we had bad language, reports of an older and younger offender, master apprentice setup. Some reported they were unequivocally Australian. Others said they were Indian or some sort of ethnic background. They had an empty tin of twoies and a Coke, a few varied reports of cars, but no plates, the drugs and the ex-con comments and not much else. 10th of March, 1994. To Nino's restaurant, Roville. After a six-month break over Christmas, the bandits next struck Tonino's in Roville. The pair were said to be quite amiable and chatty with employees as they taped them up and took four grand in takings. The older bandit gave a verbal clue. Calm down and no one will get hurt. We're Italian too. We protect you during the daytime. We work hard too. This week we haven't killed anybody. Four days later, the bandits robbed the spaghetti parlour in Wonturna. Laughing as their shaken victims trembled on the floor, the older bandit, calling himself Jesus and toting a Smith & Wesson revolver like Clint Eastwood, said, Relax, we don't want to hurt you. We just want the money. They took $7,000 and every drop of spirits from the place as they left. Six days later and the Squire's Loft Grill House in Brighton was next on the pig-out list followed by Hobson's Cafe in Sandringham late in March of 1994. Some false descriptions and false leads pertaining to the bandit's getaway car would lead police down a few dead ends. In the meantime, one Friday evening in April of 94, Tony Halliday was having a beer with his mate Gary Larkin while closing up his store, Frankston Yamaha. Be good and nothing will happen, a pair of gun-toting clowns said as they wandered in and tied the pair up. They probed if there was a safe, to which Tony said there wasn't. Displeased with a till that wouldn't open, the bandits left after fleecing the pair's wallets. The older bandit noticed a scar on Gary. I just had surgery, he said. I know how you feel. I just had an operation too. How's business been? Tony replied it was okay. He couldn't complain. All right, let's go. These blokes probably want to get home. We'll grab a beer too. The bandits left, taking a six-pack of VB from the fridge as they did. Job 25 would be the McDonald's in Blackburn South in May of 94, before the bandits hit Casey's restaurant in Berwick on June 24th. The bandits were noticeably aggravated as the takings appeared light in comparison with the number of eaters flocking the venue and the string of Mercedes parked outside. Kim Gardnerina said she could smell the older bandits' beer breath as he hastened her towards the kitchen to collect the employees' wages in envelopes that hadn't been picked up yet. He then hit her up for any decent booze they had before querying if security usually dropped by. When Kim said yes sometime after 1am, the bandit replied, Good, we love security. If they turn up, I'll give them a bullet. This same week, in June 1994, the armed robbery squad would be spread thin, after five men impersonating road workers stopped a cash-in transit van on the on-ramp to the Monash Freeway in Richmond, stealing just shy of $2.5 million in cash. The infamous road gang heist is technically unsolved to this day, although there's been arrests and dropped charges in the time since, 
So I think the police have their strong suspicions. But it was an elaborate heist with much planning going into the setup of the roadworks, including uniforms, signs and witches' hats to pull the van over. So understandably, there wasn't a lot of attention on two punks in the southeast knocking over restaurants for a few grand, a six-pack of VB and a bottle of Johnny Red. Amongst all of this, on Saturday the 25th of June, a set of number plates were stolen from a vehicle at Coffee Ford in Dandenong. And then on the very same night, a Nissan Bluebird was stolen from Berwick Nissan. So put a pin in that detail for now. On the 16th of July 1994, just a couple of weeks later, the bandits again struck the Outer East, hitting the Malaya restaurant in Knox, where a security patrolman noticed the bound restaurateur while doing his rounds and notified police. So this was job 27 in the Pig Out series. And before we get into the final job, 28... There'd be one more serious incident in the lead-up that gives us a terrifying insight into future events. months later, on the 19th of September 1994, Constable Jason Bryant and Sergeant Alan Beckwith were patrolling north along Hallam Road in Hallam. They spotted a stolen Nissan Bluebird with stolen registration plates backing out of Bowen's timber and hardware. We covered this event in detail in the introduction, but after pulling the vehicle over, Sergeant Beckwith left his vehicle to approach the Bluebird when a middle-aged, husky-looking man leapt out of the Nissan with a handgun pointed directly at the officer and fired a shot. Sergeant Beckwith dove back into his vehicle and Constable Bryant ducked behind the dash as two more shots from the attacker smashed through the windscreen. The officers then promptly reversed and removed their service revolvers to return fire, but the Bluebird took off. They fired five shots in return and tried to relocate the vehicle, but had no luck. The following day, the Nissan Bluebird was discovered at Fountain Gate Shopping Centre. It had been completely torched by fire. So luckily for officers Beckwith and Bryant, the general public don't know their names, and for a very good reason. They survived. Something I'm sure they, their families, and everybody else is happy about. The final job of the Pig Out series would occur in October of 1994, when the bandits robbed the Palm Beach restaurant in Patterson Lakes, stealing just $1,100. Again, displaying their usual MO, the pair, particularly the older one, were brash and angry, swearing at the patrons who were having a birthday celebration. The older bandit again knocked the cap off a pair of Foster's specials before fleeing the venue. Notably on this job, which would bring down some heat on the pair, potentially causing them to cease their spree, the police got a lead on the vehicle. One of the restaurant attendees, a bloke named Wayne Armitage, reported seeing the bandits leave in a white Ford Laser, registration CTS 910. Police checked this vehicle out and something didn't add up. The rego came up as belonging to a 68 Chrysler sedan owned by a guy named Ernest Shaw from Hamilton, some 300 kilometres away. 
He'd since sold it to his cousin and it had been stripped for parts some months back, police discovered. And police received a report of a stolen car in Dandenong, registration CTS813, from outside the new hotel between 10pm and 3am. Luckily, one of the armed robbery squad officers heard this report and it piqued his interest due to the very close number plates. He checked the vehicle out and it was indeed a Ford Laser belonging to Jason Giller. But this car was noted as being red, not white. So they combed through the statement from Giller reporting his stolen car. He said he'd been at the new hotel with mates, left, saw his car missing, then called the police. Pretty simple. But one of the things that jumped out to police reviewing this report was that Giller said the laser was cream in colour, not red. So clearly it had had a spray job since the police's LEAP database had been updated. Police interviewed Jason Giller after this, suspecting there could be some connection with Pig Out. Jason's dad Lou was present when they questioned him and he was understandably defensive and protective of his son. Jason was 18 by this time, 16 when Pig Out had began. And as we said, he was a skinny white boy, mild-mannered. He was a tyre fitter at this time, earning about $250 a week, and he rode motorbikes in his spare time. There wasn't anything that stood out about the kid, but police thought that the stolen vehicle report read more like an alibi than a genuine stolen vehicle report. Jason had already bought another vehicle, a cheap runabout to get to work, which police thought odd. Wouldn't he see if his stolen car had been recovered first? Apparently not. He needed a ride to get to work. Nevertheless, police surveilled Jason to see what he got up to. But the kid just worked, changed tyres, took scheduled breaks. He didn't take time off for extended periods or take any strange phone calls. Aside from him admitting to drinking a few cans of Coke, like most kids his age, there was really nothing to tie him to the pig out robberies other than this one witness statement who'd gotten the number plate wrong, close but not spot on. Jason's Ford Laser would be discovered in the time after this, abandoned and torched up in bushland at Clematis, and combined with the death of one of the leading detectives investigating the pig out case, and investigating Jason Giller in particular, the whole case went cold after this. At this time, police had no idea Jason Giller was related to Bendali Debs, a small-time petty thief with only a few blips on his radar. This guy wasn't even glanced at sideways by police at the time, and so it was alleged by police much later, once this connection was made, that the apprenticeship of Jason Giller and his uncle Bendali ended around this time. With all of the heat, it was said that Jason ended his involvement for self-preservation. He'd later wind up getting charged and convicted, as we said, in 2003 and copped a 10-year sentence when an undercover sting nabbed him. Bendali would be in prison by then and there wasn't enough admissible evidence to charge him, apparently. But back at this time, things with his uncle Bendali were done and what we know for sure is that the pig-out robberies came to an end after this. The Tyler. So now we move from the alleged to the proven. Things for Bandali Debs would dramatically escalate from this point, but it wouldn't be until years later that this would become well known, well after his involvement in the murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller. But we're going to tell it chronologically because it shows a frightful psychology 
but gives us great insight into the person we're dealing with when the aforementioned fateful night rolls around in 1998. We're in 1995 now, and what was Bandali Debs up to? Well, he'd started his own tiling business by this time, B&M Tiling. He was a hard worker, it was said. Early starts and long days, it wasn't uncommon for Bandali to work into the night to get a job done. One of his first clients was the Silky Emperor Chinese Restaurant in Warrigal Road, Moorabbin. Put a pin in that location for later in the story. Donna Hicks. Late in the day on the 21st of April 1995, Donna Hicks was soliciting for sex work along the Great Western Highway in Minchinbury, New South Wales. A guy named Mr Zanker had just departed company with Donna on the highway and said she was picked up by a dark blue utility with a canopy. Donna wasn't seen alive again. Her naked body was discovered the following morning by passers-by in long grass between the entrances to two properties on Archibald Road. This was about 8.30am on the 22nd of April. She died from a medium to large bullet wound which had entered her left cheek and exited the top of her head, shot at point-blank range. Her body had been dragged into the long grass to its final resting place and her underwear had been left on the driveway of one of the properties, but no other clothes were nearby. A forensic pathologist took swabs from Donna's body and male DNA was found indicating sexual activity had occurred prior to her murder. But the DNA didn't match anyone in the current database at the time. Years later in the 2000s, retesting would link Bandali Debs with a consistent match that was 1 in 10 billion. Turned out Bandali drove a blue Holden Rodeo with a canopy at this time, and in the days prior to Donna's murder, had been present in Minchinbury, visiting his mother nearby. Phone and bank records would later corroborate this. And Bandali's sister worked at the Colloyton Hotel, where Donna Hicks was seen drinking the night she was last seen. Credit card records would later confirm Bandali had also attended the same hotel that night. But it wouldn't be until 2012 that Bandali Debs was convicted for this cold-blooded murder, well after he'd been imprisoned. Donna Hicks had three children. Those kids, along with her mother Barbara and many other friends and family, had to endure her loss until justice was eventually served some 17 years later. But back in the present time, life continued on for the free-roaming Bandali Debs. He had some minor brushes, In 1996, he received a four-month suspended sentence for reckless conduct endangering serious injury and had his driver's licence cancelled for a time. But again, we'd see his behaviour go dark and twisted in the time after this. And again, this wouldn't come out until many years later. Christy Harty. On the 17th of June 1997, 18-year-old Christy Harty was soliciting for sex work along the Princess Highway. Christy had been having a tough time since the passing of her father not long before from an accident and it was said she had gone off the rails a little. It was reported at 15 or 16 she'd began conducting sex work and become addicted to heroin thereafter. She was a sweet young woman by all reports and in need of some guidance. She was in a vulnerable state at this time. In the days prior to the 17th of June, It was said that Christy had told a number of people that she was in urgent need of $90 to pay off some debt she'd accrued, so presumably this was her attempt to settle that. 
Around 4.30pm that day, a guy named Jeff Brown pulled over to talk to Christy. A couple of his mates had pulled over to talk to her, so he did too. I'm not sure they were looking for business themselves. The way I read it is that Christy was behaving kind of erratically. The guys, Jeff and his mate Rick, said Christy said she needed some money and she offered them sex for cash. First $50, then $90 for two. Rick said, what do you mean? And Christy replied, have a jiggy jig. Then another car apparently stopped on the other side of the road, which caught Christy's eye. And apparently she just bolted across the highway in front of traffic, leaving the pair behind. They were of the opinion she was affected by drugs. Another witness named Paul spotted her at a similar time, hitchhiking while walking backwards towards Dandenong. He said she was provocatively dressed and looking for trouble. Whatever the case, the kind of trouble that would find Christy Harty was the sort that shouldn't happen to anyone, no matter their state of mind or activity. She was last seen alive at a takeaway shop in Dandenong, it was reported. The following day, this was the 18th of June 97, Christy's body was discovered by two people walking along a bush track around 180 metres off the Upper Beaconsfield Road. She'd been shot at point-blank range in the back of the head and her underwear was rolled down around her ankles. A safe sex pack was found nearby, unopened. Police surmised that Christy, who'd been recently diagnosed with hepatitis, was trying to be responsible by using the pack, but the offender who'd sexually assaulted and shot her hadn't used it. Instead, traces of his DNA were found on her body, and forensic testing showed the gun used to shoot Christy was a 357 Magnum revolver. Years later, Christie's murder would be linked through DNA and ballistics to Bandali Debs. In 2005, he was charged and convicted of her murder. It was said that somewhere between Heatherton Road and this remote track in Upper Beaconsfield, probably along the old Princess Highway near Fountaingate, Christie had encountered Bandali as he was coming home from a day's tiling work. Her body had been dragged and dumped in the bushes, and there were no signs of a struggle or disagreement, it was said just a brutal, cold-blooded assault and murder. But, as we said, this wouldn't come out until years later. And it makes you think what else may have happened during this time. Clearly we have a disturbed individual here. This wasn't just some sort of perceived self-preservation matter, shooting at someone, police or otherwise, in the midst of being caught conducting criminal activity. This was seemingly sexually motivated and for pleasure. In the Underbelly File Show, which covers predominantly the investigation into the Silk Miller murders, it doesn't get into the background we're covering today, but there's a scene where the character of Bandali Debs picks up a backpacker who's hitchhiking, and her name is Sabrina. And in this scene, things get weird, and the car stops at one point, she escapes from the vehicle and flees to nearby safety. Now, you can never be sure how much creative license is taken with these things. That might have been the case with this. The rest of the show was pretty bang on, I thought, in terms of how they covered the investigation. There's always a few things tweaked for TV, but it makes you wonder where this came from. We didn't see anything in the research about this incident, but it does make you think, could something else have happened? Do we have other murders, missing person cases, unsolved, linked or other attacks where people got away? But again, around nine months after the murder of Christy Harty, 
it was alleged that Bandali had spotted his next apprentice. And again, we say alleged as they weren't convicted of these crimes due to lack of evidence, but they were openly named as the perpetrators by a judge in court records when providing context for the Silk Miller trial. But in fairness, and to be consistent, we will use similar descriptions of the older and younger bandit when running through the next series of robberies known as the Hamada robberies. Around this time, Bandali became acquainted with a man named Jason Roberts, another Jason but a different guy altogether. The Apprentice Bandali's daughter Nicole started seeing Jason. Jason Roberts was described as a young man full of confidence. He was born on the 23rd of August 1980 in Noble Park. When he was aged nine, his father died from a sudden heart attack. His mum raised him and his brother Shane in Cranbourne. Jason met Nicole Debs when he was six years old at the karate school, but wouldn't be until years later where they'd meet again in their later teens that their relationship would develop. It was at Jason's cousin's birthday they'd meet again. Jason was 16, Nicole 17 at this time. They started seeing each other. Bandali bought Nicole a car when she got her license in the time after this, a blue Hyundai XL. So Jason and Nicole were able to see each other more now that they could get around. They built a home in Cranbourne together, living at the Debs household in the interim. Bandali ended up kicking them out when Jason bought Nicole a Labrador one day Evidently, he didn't want the pooch shitting and stinking up the place. Jason had left school by this time. He'd become a carpentry apprentice. He left that to do factory work, process work, before getting back into the construction industry doing demolition. He was into cars, particularly his lime green Tirana that he'd done up, which he'd spent around $5,000 on. And as time went on, it was said that Jason and his future father-in-law, Bendali, formed a relationship perhaps similar to what Bendali had years earlier with his nephew, or what he'd had when he was younger with his adopted father Malik. The police alleged that in the time after this, the pair were the perpetrators in a second series of armed robberies in Melbourne's Outer East and South East. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
Hamada. 9th of March, 1998. Two revolver-toting bandits robbed Bevix Auto Parts in Karam Downs, looting around $6,000. The younger bandit was shorter, quieter, the older full of bravado and swagger. The older wore a balaclava and the younger a cap and shades. They ordered the victims to the ground and bound them with tape before leaving the scene with cash in a bag. So obviously the MO of this robbery piqued police interest immediately. Right away, it reeked of the previous and still unsolved pig-out robberies from some four, five years earlier. 29th of March, Sportsmart, Noble Park. The two bandits rolled in, holding up employees Sophie Kershaw and Greg Lewis at gunpoint. Both men had stocking masks on, the younger man a ponytail cinched in a gold ring, the older wearing dark wraparound sunglasses. Don't be a smartass, this is a robbery. I'll kill you if I have to, the young bandit said, as the older, oozing authority, forced the employees to get cash bags from a safe out the back. Meanwhile, the younger bandit tied up victims within the store, one mother named Annabelle Vaughan clutching her three-year-old Madison to her chest as the bandit bound them with tape. They made off with the taking shortly thereafter, victims unable to give much in the way of descriptions that led anywhere. 19th of April, 1998. The Treasure Chinese Restaurant, Forest Hill. Two bandits bound three victims, stole $5,500, jewellery and mobile phones, while toting guns and wearing monkey masks. Be nice or we'll shoot you, one of the bandits said, before the pair departed in under 10 minutes. Four weeks later in May, the bandits hit the Kuali Indi restaurant in Mentone, followed by a jumbo Chinese restaurant in Blackburn on the 8th of June. At the jumbo, they bound the workers closing up, stole cash, Johnny Walker black label and jewellery from the staff. This time, the bandits had on these homemade masks of cardboard that had these swirly texture lines drawn on them to make them kind of look like demons or ghouls of some kind. Next up was Dick Smith's electronics store in Mulgrave on the 26th of June. Here, the balaclava-wearing bandits robbed the store of $3,000 and half a dozen Yesu transceivers, radio gear of some kind, and took off to their car parked in the shadows of a nearby Liberty service station. Again, leads proved to be dead ends for the police. Suspects again cropped up, people were identified, surveilled, but in the end, nothing led to the perpetrators. Only two days later, the bandits would commit two jobs in a 24-hour period. They stormed the Jade Restaurant in Kew, where they held up restaurateur Lily Zhang, stole $2,200, jewellery and a bottle of lemonade. Then, right after this, they rolled into the Scoresby Red Rooster, where Vanessa Melrose was on front counter duties. A young man walked in and pulled on a horror mask before shoving a revolver in her face and saying, do you know what this is? An older bandit followed and they departed minutes later with a take similar to that of the Jade Q. Police found no prints, no CCTV, no car, no evidence at all aside from some basic descriptions and similar MO. 5th of July, 1998. Ashburton, Kentucky Fried Chicken. The Colonel's KFC was robbed by an older bandit wearing a Richard Nixon mask and his smaller, younger offsider. They made away with $5,000. This 
This would make way for the tenth and final robbery at the Green Papaya Chinese Restaurant in Surrey Hills on the 18th of July, 1998. Here, the cocky bandits wearing Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan masks would terrify customers and leave a chilling message with staff for the police. Tell them Lucifer was here. This is what would lead to the Operation Codename Hamada, which would involve a series of stakeouts that the armed robbery squad would undertake thereafter to catch these elusive restaurant bandits. Many of these soft targets were identified and police set up to stake out the restaurants to sit in wait for Lucifer and his young offsider. And it was during this very operation that Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller would team up for Hamada stakeout duties on the 15th of August, 1998. And that's where we put a pin in this story, Chloe, to be continued next episode. Postscript. Two additional points I wanted to briefly discuss at the end here, Chloe. The first is the 1990 disappearance of Sarah McDermott. Bandali Debs has been linked to this case in recent years since his convictions, seemingly due to common practices where killers are routinely looked into for crimes they could be linked to. This one fit the bill in the sense that it was in a similar region in Melbourne's outer southeast. Sarah McDermott was a 23-year-old woman who disappeared from the Cannonook Railway Station car park in Melbourne's outer southeast after a game of tennis with her friends on the evening of the 11th of July 1990. Her car was discovered in the car park with a quantity of blood on the ground nearby with a trail of droplets leading into some bush. Disturbed ground and drag marks were prevalent. But Sarah's body hasn't been found to this very day. She is presumed murdered. Numerous searches conducted at the time and since, police and media appeals for information have not led to a conviction, although there are some suspects in the case. Sarah's father wrote an open letter to Bendali begging him to confess if he had any information about his daughter. Bendali did not reply and denies any involvement. We're not going to delve into this crime specifically too much in this episode, but we will at a later date. We want to point it out as it has come up in the research. It seems odd that it was connected as he not really escalated to much more than petty thievery at this point. This was a year before the first pig out armed robberies. But I think we can see why Bandali came under suspicion for this one because he was clearly capable of it, albeit unlikely when you dive a bit deeper into this crime and factor the M.O., The second is while going through court records of Jason Giller's trial in 2003, there appeared to be a handful more robberies that were mentioned as being connected to him and his uncle Bandali that weren't connected to the official pig out robberies way back when. And the last thing we want to do is run through a bunch of other robberies here, Chloe, but there's one in particular I wanted to touch on. The dates and locations just quickly were... Armed robbery at the Shooter's Shop Springvale on the 28th of February 1992. Armed robbery and attempted murder at the Clayton News Power News Agency Clayton on the 29th of November 1992. Armed robbery on McDonald's staff and guard near the Commonwealth Bank night safe at Fountain Gate Shopping Centre on the 16th of May 1993. Armed robbery at the Bank of Melbourne Berwick on the 16th of October 1993. But specifically in relation to the armed robbery and attempted murder at the Clayton News Power Agency, 
In the early hours on the 29th of November 1992, this was around 3am, Mr and Mrs Yakub, a middle-aged couple, were commencing work at the agency preparing newspapers for delivery. At about 4.20am, Mrs Yakub was confronted by two male offenders in the rear work area of the news agency. These guys were armed with handguns and wearing balaclavas. They demanded money from her at gunpoint. When her husband, Shorky, entered the work area, he saw what was happening and he called the offenders to not hurt his wife. He then pushed his wife onto the ground and lay on top of her to protect her from the offenders. In doing so, the larger of the two offenders, who the prosecution alleged was Bendali, then took aim from close range and fired one shot at Mr Yakub. The bullet entered into the upper left side of his back, just below the shoulder blade. This attack rendered Mr Yakub paraplegic. So it's a very sad way to end this episode, but I think it's important because it's easy to think that, you know, they didn't hurt anyone during the robberies except for the accidental shooting that uh, I think it was Belinda who got her foot hit at Black Rock there, but it wasn't the case. There were even more robberies and lives permanently affected here. So while not officially connected, the courts have certainly published links and I think it's important to cover off to fully get the gravity of these attacks. Very, very sad. But that's it for this episode, Chloe. I think we have a pretty good understanding now of the characters, their actions, the background and the setting for what would become a notorious, shocking and fateful August night in Victoria in 1998. To be discussed more next week. Your thoughts for now? Yeah, so I feel so sorry for these women who we've covered who died in this case and really anyone that's come in contact with this guy, Bendali, particularly over the years. The trail of destruction is immense and I don't know if this is a spoiler and don't know if that's a thing if something happens in real life. But anyway, I read sentencing notes that the judge described his crimes as senseless, needless and wanton. And that word needless has just swirled around in my head ever since. Most crime and death especially at the hands of someone else seems unfair. And the fact that these crimes were needless, that they were carried out for no other reason than to kill or to hurt someone just makes me sick. To do something for a thrill or whatever other reason, but mostly to just cause pain to another person takes a real low life. So I'm not looking forward to talking about this guy again next week, I have to say, but I am looking forward to diving into the case and particularly the police investigation that led to potentially the demise of this piece of work. So obviously, you know, we wanted to do this case justice by presenting it in its entirety. There's a lot of crimes, many victims, not all murder victims, many lives affected. One thing we didn't want was for Donna Hicks and Christy Harty to simply become footnotes in the story of what happens to Gary Silk and Rodney Miller. But also, the background and robberies, I think, provide a massive amount of context and backdrop, etc., as we said before, for next week's episode. I mean, we have a police shooting already in this episode, an attempted one anyway, so it's a violent path to this point and it only gets worse. And again, next week we're going to see that prevalent element of the police investigation and how it all goes down ultimately with solving this crime. We're talking wiretaps, which we have a lot of audio of, which is fascinating, but at the same time very bittersweet in its conclusion. So we'll bring it home next week. 
As far as what we've discussed today, my thoughts go out to the families of Donna Hicks and Christy Harty, and indeed the robbery victims too, although some years ago now, now these things can have a lasting impact, a trauma that lingers for a long time, and it can be really difficult to move on from that. Yeah, so to be continued. Um, So moving on to our happy thoughts. Do you want me to go first? Go first, absolutely. The floor is yours. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) So I got a new tattoo yesterday. So um, I like tattoos and um, I got one that is, it's probably the most meaningless one I've gotten so far, Um, but it's a picture of a unicorn. Um, (laughs) Pretty much a My Little Pony, but in unicorn form, I guess. Um, I got the tattoo artist to add a little circle on the unicorn's back uh, because I have a wolfhound who has a little nub on his head and we always joke that it's because he's turning into a unicorn. So now I'm just kind of saying when he goes full unicorn, this is what he looks <laughs> going to look like. Um, it's a pink unicorn with pink hair and pink body, but that's fine. It looks cool. <laughs> We're not going to yeah. judge Milo when he turns into that. Um, so what's your happy thought? Well, mine's about something new as well. Not a tattoo. It's not as cool as that, but it's about a new desk. And I showed you when we got yeah. here tonight. I've got this... Um, I think I've mentioned on here before, I'm into some Kickstarter and Indiegogo things, you know, yep. these new inventions. Um, and there's a new desk that's been made right here in Melbourne by these guys, these pair of carpenters. So cool. Yeah, it's really cool. They're making it in the in the Dandenongs, these guys. And it's a um, this awesome desk on, on Kickstarter and it's uh, – I work at a desk all day and mm. then all night when yeah. morning we're doing the podcast. <laughs> so it seemed like a good thing to invest in. It's a really clever desk. You know, it's got a lot of, it's made of really good wood and it's got a bunch of compartments and some sort of, you know, a lot of that wire concealment and stuff like that. Yeah. And sort of powered and a few different things. So it's going to be really cool. I think it'll make a big difference to the uh, the working day. And Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. And, you know, send us free stuff, guys, on Kickstarter if yeah, you want to. absolutely. <laughs> um, so if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, and find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. We just dropped a blooper reel last week. Yes. And our next Patreon episode will be in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, we're just putting the final touches on that. Uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show. Thank you to everyone who's done so recently. Yeah, we appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you all again for listening. We'll be back next week with part two of this saga and we'll catch you all then. Thank you. Bye. that in the back of your minds yeah normally we say
Um, we have a thing put, that we say. So put, put a pin. A, yeah, yeah. Put a put pin. Put a pin in that this part of the story. That sounds better, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, or just right. a little like put a pin in that that <clears throat> um, detail for now. Yeah, put a pin in that deep. Commit that. Commit that little detail no, to your memory bank. No, calm down. It's a little thing. <laughs> Don't <laughs> <laughs> one short remark. Amongst all of this, on Saturday the twenty fifth of June. A set of number plates were stolen from a vehicle at Coffee Ford in Dandenong. And then on the same night, a Nissan Bluebird was stolen from Berwick Nissan. So commit that little morsel to your... (laughs) (laughs) Amongst all of this, on Saturday the 25th of June, a set of number plates were stolen from a vehicle at Coffee Ford in Dandenong. Then on the very same night, a Nissan Bluebird was stolen from Berwick Nissan. Put a pin in that and keep that in your fucking... (laughs) Oh, my God. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 